Well, good morning again. This morning happens to be a fifth Sunday in a calendar month. And what we have been doing for uh, over 10 years now at our church is whenever there are five Sundays in a calendar month, I take some of your questions and do my best to answer them from a biblical theological perspective. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, which it looks like there are a few of you, uh, we typically study through a book of the Bible. Currently, we are in the book of James, and we study verse by verse. Uh, we practice what we call expository preaching, and that's just an in-depth, verse-by-verse explanation of God's Word. Uh, I believe, and we believe as a church, that that is the way to preach the Bible. It is exemplified in the Scriptures. It is clear of the power of the Word, and which lends to the need to look at every single word deeply, because God has said it, so we need to make sure we get it correct. However, uh, if there are any drawbacks to expository preaching, one of them is that we spend a lot of time in certain passages and books, and so some of your questions that may not be addressed in that particular epistle or in that particular chapter uh, may be left unanswered. And so we take this time to do a Q&A. So again, if you're visiting with us, it's a little bit of a different Sunday, which we do three or four times a year. Uh, Feel free to, of course, join us next week. We'll be back to a a normal Sunday uh, with the addition of communion, uh, or of course you can listen to our sermons online. Well, if you were here with us, I believe it was in June when we did a QA, and uh, I was able to get through four of your questions. This morning I have 12, and I'm going to do my best to get through as many as possible, which means that I will go at a, a bit of a faster pace with a little bit less background uh, as to what the question means which I like to do because uh, if you didn't ask the question, you may not understand the theology involved in the actual question, uh, but we'll surpass that at, or bypass that this time around, and uh, I'll just uh, go and answer briefly and try to get through as many as possible. Well, let's jump right in. Question number one, how should Christians view mental health? It's now a term I hear regularly, not just by our society, but even Christians although I don't see it anywhere in Scripture. Uh, For example, leaving a job or bad relationship because it's affected my, quote, mental health. When we look at our society, this is one of those things that has been growing in popularity. Talking about mental health, you hear a lot of people needing to take a a mental health day or even prominent... um, Athletes uh, taking a break or stopping their uh, careers completely because of the effect on their mental health. The Bible is very clear that we need to engage our hearts and our minds. We need to engage physically as well. Over and over again, the mind is emphasized as very important in our worship of God. The Bible says that we are to engage the mind. In Philippians 4, we are to trust the Lord in prayer and not be anxious. That's not about your physical body. That's about your mind. Romans 12, 2 speaks of renewing the mind. In fact, the mind, as connected to the heart, is one of the best ways that we as Christians avoid legalism. In other words, just doing things with our hands and our feet, so to speak, in service and not truly worshiping with the heart and the mind. And though the term mental health is not found in Scripture, the Word of God is clear that we are to keep our minds clear and focused 
so that we can give the Lord our all. Love the Lord, the Bible says, with all your heart, soul, and mind. So clearly the mind, and if you want to put it this way, the health of your mind is very important to God. Generally speaking, however, as you are very well aware, that is not what our society or culture says or refers to when they talk about mental health, especially within the last few years. We have to understand as believers everything that I just said, that the mind and mental health is very important. However, we got to be careful that we don't go to the extremes of some people in our culture that say it's okay and noble to stop everything because of your mental health. So don't earn money, don't be faithful to the Lord, don't attend church, don't sacrifice for the Lord. There's a certain place where we need to be careful because we know that our society uses a lot of catchphrases, right? And these catchphrases have gotten to the point in our culture where if someone says something, then you are wrong and you must stop everything for their sake. Words that don't literally mean what the phrase means, like triggered or safe space or mental health. And those are words where if someone uses those terms, if you don't back off and stop, even if it's out for their good, like sharing the gospel, then you need, then you're in, you need to be canceled, right? And so we need to be careful with that. We need to also understand that in God's empowerment by the Holy Spirit, being a Christian and living out the Christian life is very difficult. It is challenging. And so to say, well, it's affecting my mental health, I'm not happy, and just say, well, I'm not going to sacrifice because it's too hard, that's the level where we need to avoid in terms of using that phrase mental health, uh, as many people do uh, in our society. So in terms of its cultural uses, it can be very dangerous. It's already dangerous and hurting our, our society. It can be de very dangerous for the Christian because we understand the concept of taking up your cross. However, mental health, just as that phrase, not as a catchphrase in society, is very important. Okay? Number two, as Christians, should we send our kids to Christian school or homeschool them or private school? How can we biblically discern whether it's better to send our kids to private school or public school especially given the rapid deterioration of moral teaching in school, for example, LGBT affirming education, etc. There is no specific guidance within the scriptures in terms of schooling. Uh, it's one of those things where you can say, well, the Old Testament people homeschool. Well, that's because they had no other choice. That's just what they did. There were no public schools at that time. And really, there's no right or wrong on the surface. And what I mean by this is, if you choose public school, that in and of itself is not wrong. If you choose the home school, that in and of, of itself is not wrong. Uh, if you have the means to private school and you choose to do that, that decision in and of itself is not wrong. What is important is that we think through biblically why we are making the choices we are making. In other words, the Bible is not going to lead you to say, oh, it must be homeschool or public school. However, principles within the scriptures and fleshed out in your own family will help you decide 
uh, one or the other? And I really like this question because I think oftentimes in really big decisions like schooling, as Christians, we don't often think through it or search through it biblically. We just, well, public school, it's a status quo. Or, well, pressures from our church friends, everyone's homeschooling, let's do homeschooling. We need to think through these things. I do want to mention Ephesians 6, 4, which says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why I bring this up is because no matter what your schooling choice is, you as a parent and especially the father need to make sure that you are teaching them and raising your children in the discipline and, and instruction of the Lord. And so public school or homeschool, that can be neglected even if in your homeschool curriculum, Bible is a class. You still need to make it more than just an academic exercise and talk to them, teach them the scriptures, teach them how it fleshes out in their individual life. And so when you start thinking, well, I need a homeschool because public school, they're not going to teach these things. That's not their job. It's not their job to teach this. It's fathers. It's the parents' job to do this. And so when it comes to schooling, I cannot tell you what to decide. That's between you and your spouse and the Lord. But here are a few things to consider. You need to trust the Lord. You need to trust the Lord that if you choose public school, that you can, that the Bible is true and you're raising up your children with the scriptures is going to be effective. If you're going to homeschool, you need to trust the Lord that you're teaching them is going to be effective as their academic teacher. It's important to understand that in the scriptures, we are never told to do anything as believers out of fear, except fear the Lord. We're to trust him. And whatever schooling you choose should not be chosen out of fear. This also means that although academic success is important, financial success has its place, this should not be your primary factor in choosing one type of schooling or another. And I also want to mention, nowhere in Scripture are we called to pull our children out of the world to protect them. And so we need to make sure that we have an understanding uh, of, of God's uh, power. Number two, we must prioritize. The ultimate priority is your child's salvation, and if they are saved, their sanctification, their spiritual growth. And we need to understand that God saves not any form of education. I know people who were indoctrinated their whole lives with atheistic communism, and yet now they are thriving as Christian pastors. I also know people who were raised their whole lives in uh, Christian private school, and they're not walking with the Lord, some of the most hedonistic people. And so ultimately, uh, we don't we can't control those things. We need to trust the Lord. We need to prioritize their salvation and their spiritual growth. Number three, be consistent. Be consistent. If you're going to choose public school, then you need to be consistent in understanding what they are exposed to, and you need to be teaching them the scriptures, and you need to be getting in their lives and hearing what anti-God, anti-biblical things they're being taught. 
if you are going to be a homeschooler, then you need to understand that your example as a godly role model is in some ways even more profound because they are watching you. Whereas my children who are in public school know their teachers are going to teach them anti-God things. We've already talked about them. I've already talked to my elementary school uh, children about homosexuality and evolution and things like that. They know that their teachers, for the most part, are not believers. And so there's a clear distinction. For the homeschoolers, I would encourage you to be extra careful because that distinction is not there because the person teaching them these things is also their parent and a Christian. And so make sure you are uh, consistent. Number four is be humble. Be humble. We need to pray. We need to consider things seriously. We need to not assume that someone not doing our choice of schooling has not prayed. Whatever you choose, do not become arrogant or judgmental toward those who choose the other one because as believers, we all feel very strongly about the, the type of education that we have chosen for our most precious possession, if you can put it that way, our children. I have very strong biblical convictions as to why I chose public school for my children. That does not mean I think homeschooling is wrong. It's wrong for us. I do not judge our families in our church who have done homeschooling. I praise them. I think it's good. And I, I admire them because I know it's hard work. I don't think it's wrong. I trust that they have prayed and made the right decision according to what they have talked about as a family and before the Lord. However, when I talk about being humble, historically, and I mean recent history, not all the way to you know, the book of Acts, but within probably the last 30 or 40 years, within like-minded conservative churches, okay? So what I'm talking about is, I'm going to be talking about division. I'm not talking about division based on different views on the sign gifts or theology. They all agree. So it's usually peripheral issues that divide the conservative church. Within the last few decades, nothing has divided the conservative church more than the issue of homeschooling. And so I just want to encourage you to be humble, to be not, not be judgmental if you're public schooling or homeschooling. I remember about seven years ago, someone walked into our church, was thrilled, wanted to join, was really excited, and they found out one of our uh, families was homeschooling. And he ran up to my wife and I said, do you guys homeschool? I said, no. I said, okay, you're not a homeschool church. And the reason is I have friends where the homeschool movement is so strong that if you choose public school, even though you agree with all of their theology, you are judged and you're, you feel like an outcast. Um, and you are told that you're letting the Satan raise your children and things like that. And so we need to be very careful that if we're going to divide this church, let's be it on things that God wants us to divide over. Okay, biblical, biblical doctrines. Um, again, I have no problem with homeschooling for other people. But if you're curious and you want to, if you were to ask me why I have cho chosen public school, there are three main reasons. And this is, these reasons I'm going to give you are in order of uh, importance to my wife and I. 
The first is that we want to raise the next generation of evangelists. We do not want our children to be of the world, but we definitely want them to be in the world. And so by going to public school and being more involved in our community, which if you know me uh, as an introvert can be difficult, but we want to be involved in the community and we're walking to school with the same people, we've gotten to know people, and the Lord has blessed that. On any given Sunday, we have uh, about a dozen individuals in our church who would not be here if we were not at the school around the corner from our home. And one of them is now our children's ministry director. Uh, the second reason is because at some point, my children will be exposed to all of these things that we're worried about in our culture. Whether it's going to be now when they're in elementary school or later when they're in college or even later when they graduate from college and get a real job and live on their own. I would rather them be exposed to those things while they are still living in my home and still value my input so that they can come home and say, I heard this, I heard that, my friend talked about this, about this girl, what does that mean? And I can explain it. Whereas in college, I'm not there, or even if I am there, they don't want to hear what I have to say, possibly. Okay? And then thirdly, for us, especially as a pastor and his wife, just to be, have more time for ministry. Um, I've said it before. You guys know this. Any pastor's wife in any given church has no greater obligation in the church than to raise her children and to serve and minister to her husband. My wife chooses to do more than that, to disciple people, to lead the women's group, to be a foster mom, to do many of those other things. And so part of our decision on a practical level is to free us both up to have more time and opportunity to do those things. Nothing I just said in our personal convictions say anything negative about homeschooling. I just want to be clear on that, okay? Question number three. Please explain how we are supposed to be both, to both be repentant of sin, yet also it is expected that we will continue to sin on this earth until we reach glory. Would this indicate the believer should expect to face a wide variety of sin in their lifetime? Otherwise, falling into the same sin continuously might suggest we have not genuinely repented. This is a great question because repentance is turning away from the sin. And we can say, well, if you turn away from that sin, then is it okay to do another sin? Because if I fall back to that same sin, have I not truly repented? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. The sorrow, so this would be sorrow or guilt, feeling guilty over sin. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And I read that because I think it's very helpful in understanding that when we repent, okay, or when we turn from that sin, why are we doing it? Do we just feel bad? Is a major life worse? Did you get caught? Whatever it is. Or is there a true godly sorrow in that I have grieved, as David says, I have grieved the Lord. Secondarily, my wife, my kids, my coworkers, whatever. But is your primary focus, 
I have offended God who died and bled for my sins. And then you turn to true repentance. Now what should happen as you grow in the Lord is that you will repent of the same sin over and over, possibly. But as you mature, what should happen is you sin less, but you feel worse when you do sin. That's because, First John talks about this, as young men, right, we have conquered temptation, we have conquered sin. But as spiritual fathers, you grow from just saying, that's wrong, I need to turn away from that, to having a deeper loving relationship with the Lord. It's the same thing. Right? When you're a kid, you stop making mistakes because you get a timeout or whatever it is, whatever form of discipline your parents enforced. Now as adults, you help out when you visit your parents more because you just love them. You see them busy, unable to walk as well or whatever, and it's not because you just know it's the right thing to do. It's out of this love for them because you have grown up, you've grown closer, you're more mature. And it's the same thing with the Christian life. As we grow, you're going to have a deeper understanding of God and His grace and love Him more, and so your sin is going to create a greater sense of guilt in your own life. I would add to this that you will also ha- your sin will be less deep. And what I mean by this is that as you grow, you may still struggle with anger, right? But as you grow in the Lord, you feel worse in your anger today, even though it was just a little bit of frustration in traffic, whereas that same level of guilt you felt 20 years ago, you were beating your children out of anger. You see, it's, you feel worse even though your sin, uh, practically speaking, is not as serious or grave. That's spiritual growth. But it's still anger. So you re- you've repented of anger over and over again. You still struggle with anger or pride or lust or whatever it may be, but you feel worse when you do it. It's less often, and the how it fleshes out is, is a lot more controlled and self-controlled. Okay? I need to mention 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that means is when we sin or we repent or whatever it may be, it needs to be all about God's grace and holiness, not just performance or happiness. Question number four. Can you provide guidance for how to faithfully apply 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, especially for those in the position of the younger man or woman seeking to encourage or correct the older brother or sister in the faith? 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. This is a principle One of these principles we've had in our culture for decades, if not centuries, that come from the scripture but have kind of been lost in recent years, which is respect your elders. Um, Older man here means, doesn't just mean like a couple years older. This means an elder, an elderly person compared to you. Um, In the Greek, the word is rebuke, okay? 
Um, and it says here, do not sharply rebuke, but in the Greek it just says rebuke. Um, the word was added in the English translation to emphasize the intensity of the rebuke. This verse does not mean that you can never correct an older person. It does not mean that you, you bypass some of the one another's just because they're older. It's just saying that we are to use respect and caution. And it ends after talking about all of those relationships, it says in all purity. That means not out of selfishness, not out of anger, not out of sin, things like this. Okay, we need to appeal to them as a father, especially if they actually are your father. Um, to hear some young people, how they talk about their parents is kind of shocking within the church. Right? We need to be loving. We need to be gracious. We need to show them respect and love and honor with an understanding that you are not the Holy Spirit. If they are a believer, they have the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says appeal to him as a father. That means to come alongside him right? Bashing, condescending, things like that are not coming alongside someone. And so we still need to practice the one another's. We just need to make sure we do it graciously and out of respect, especially if they're an older person. But again, it, it, it mentions all of the different ages, which we are to do all of them with the same respect and honor. Um, but of course, especially towards those who are older. Question number five. How should I respond to someone who I've shared the gospel with who thinks they have a saving knowledge of God, but based on their life or view of faith, their salvation seems unlikely? This is a, a question that um, later on, we might not get to it because it's at the end here, that also talks about backsliding or people who have, uh, were, were Christians or you believe they were Christians, they went to church, and then they uh, turned away uh, from the Lord, they now reject Christ or they're in unrepentant sin and don't seem to care. This question is about sharing the gospel. And so um, the background given by the asker was in regard to people who attend church regularly or are part of another religion, including Catholicism. Um, I'll answer it this way. We cannot make it more difficult to become a Christian than God does. And what God says in Romans 10, 9 through 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now only God can truly know if someone is saved because only God can see the heart. The Bible indicates that someone can even deceive themselves into thinking they're saved when they actually aren't. We can't read people's hearts. However, we are given an external gauge, which is fruit. And fruit, of course, is, would be acts of obedience, uh, worship, love, genuine excitement, and trust in the Lord. Uh, we will see this very clearly in James chapter 2. I'll read for you 17 and 18. He says, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And that's true, right? How do we know someone is truly a believer? We look at how they live, right? Is their speech seasoned with salt? Is their life exemplary of holiness and a desire for godliness? 
John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so going back to the specific question, if it's a, a case of evangelism, you know, when we talk to people who say they are believers, biblical love, as we saw back in 1 Corinthians 13, says true love, agape love, believes all things. That is roughly translated in our vernacular to give the benefit of the doubt. Not foolishly, right? Not you saw the guy clearly commit the crime and go, well, I didn't see anything, got to give the benefit of the doubt. But give the benefit of the doubt in that you can trust that the Lord is working in them, trust that, you know, don't always assume the worst, which is what we tend to do. When it comes to evangelism and this situation, the one thing I do not give the benefit of the doubt about is that they are saved. Because it is simply too big of an issue to say, oh, they say they're saved. They're saved. I'm not going to bother them about the gospel. And we all have probably experienced situations where someone was just look like a Christian, live like a Christian, preach like a Christian, and clearly time told that they weren't a Christian. And so in evangelism, I would continue sharing the gospel. You could do so in a kind way. You can ask them, say, okay, so you believe the gospel, just to be clear, so you believe, and then go through the point that we're all sinners, we can't save ourselves, you know, and um, just go through the gospel. And, and if you, if it's an issue where the belie- you know, the person who's professing to be a believer says, I am a Christian, but then there's clearly... Uh, unrepentant sin or lack of fruit, then that's the level where I would address it. And then eventually that may get you to dig deeper into sharing the gospel and saying, look, have you truly done this? I know you know the gospel, but have you truly given your life to Christ as Lord and Savior? Because there's a big difference between being able to recite the gospel, thinking you know the gospel, and truly in your heart submitting to the gospel. Uh, There's a big difference, okay? Number six, would you explain briefly the meaning of the term lordship salvation and give some background to the theological controversy over this term? Is this concept still being debated in Christian circles today? Assuming the lordship salvation view is the correct or more reasonable view, what scriptural basis is there for this view? Lordship salvation simply means that if you are a Christian, you submit to Jesus Christ and obey him as Lord. It is not just acknowledging that he has a title like Savior, King of Kings, Jesus. It is confessing him as Lord and in our hearts submitting to him as Lord. What does that mean? You do what he says. You submit to his authority. That's lordship salvation. Why is there such debate over it? I really don't know. It, it's, it, it confounds me. Um, actually, I do know why. It's because people who have taught lordship salvation, they have been accused of being taught legalism that you can earn your salvation through works, which is not what lordship salvation says. Lordship salvation definitely says that if, you have, if you're truly a believer, then he is lord, so there will be fruit, so there will be works, but not so that you will be saved, but because you are saved. 
okay? So what Lordship Salvation does is it contrasts what we call easy believism. And easy believism is just a silly term for the idea that you could pray a prayer and, that you're, and then you're saved. Um, a big thing back in the 80s was these big youth groups, youth camps, retreats where people got really emotional. And on the last night of the weekend, they would have this big bonfire and they would, everyone would get a stick, say, this is your sin, this is your old life. And, you know, if you want to become a Christian, throw your stick in the fire. And so people would throw the stick in the fire. Some of them are just emotional. Some of them truly wanted to believe. Some of people just wanted to see more fire. <laughs> and you will literally have people who are sleeping around, who are not going to church, who are filled with anger and bitterness, clearly uh, are not Christians, but said, well, um, I threw the stick in the fire at youth group, or I, I prayed the prayer when I was 12. And if I can be perfectly honest with you, in my very limited experience, I hear less of people saying that and more of their parents saying that. I get it. As a parent, I get it. There is nothing you want more than your child to be a Christian, but do not deceive yourself just because they were baptized or just because they prayed a prayer. There's evidence that we can even tell without being able to see the heart by fruit. Okay, fruit does not prove they're a Christian. However, lack of fruit, lack of fruit is almost a guarantee that they are not. Okay, so that's where fruit comes in. And uh, again, it's James 2, 14 through 17. Um, you know, the, the works and faith that's, the same issue. All right. Question number seven. There, there are many Christian, uh, quote, Christian inspiration books available. While a large portion seem to be just fluff, are there, are there any popular books that we should be wary of? Ones that have poor theology, toxic ideology, or promote woke Christianity, etc. There are so many books published now that there's no way I could keep track. And if I did and give you a list of names, it's just, it's too much, okay? So I'm gonna give you some principles of how to make sure a book is good. Some principles are just surface, okay? These are not foolproof uh, because it's basically when you're at the store and you don't wanna buy it or read it, some things you can look for just on the cover. Then if you're willing to read it, there are obviously some other uh, things to look at. Okay, so on the surface, not definitive, but helpful before buying or starting a book. Number one, who wrote the foreword and who endorses the book? Okay, so who wrote the foreword? Um, that's very important. Not all books have a foreword. Not the introduction that's written by the author, but the foreword, someone who recommends the book. Okay, um, and then, you know, usually on the back cover, especially if the book's been around, there's a lot of... Uh, recommendation, they endorse the books, right? See who those people are. Very often it's people you've never heard of, but if it's someone you've never heard of, they will generally say, pastor in such and such a church, leader of such and such ministry, you can jump online, get on your phone, look at what that church or ministry believes, okay? 
And so if someone who's endorsing the book goes to a, a seeker church or you know, a church that we don't, you wouldn't agree with, then you don't want that book. Why? Because if someone believes what we believe, they're not going to allow, even if the publisher wants it, they're going to say, no, I don't want an endorsement from that person. It, nor would that person probably want to endorse that book. Okay? Um, number two, again, none of this is definitive, but is there a Bible index? Flip to the back, and is there a scripture index? In other words, what page different verses are mentioned? That is key that that book is filled with scripture. If people are just going to sprinkle a little scripture in there, they're not going to have a scripture index because it's not a priority for the author, and the scripture index is only going to be like four lines. If there's a scripture index, that's a good sign. Again, doesn't mean you should buy it or believe it. It is a good sign. Number three, what version of the Bible is used? Again, not definitive. But if it is a solid uh, version of the Bible, such as the New King James, NAS, ESV, that's good. Uh, if they're using the New Living Translation, probably not the best. If they're using multiple versions, that's also a red flag because they're just going to find an English version that supports whatever they want to write. Okay, Again, not all, all authors do that. Some use different versions just to help you understand, but these are just things to look at. And then, of course, who is the author? Now, more and more people are being published, and so there may be nothing you can find on that author. It could be just some guy who got his PhD in theology, and they're like, this is really, your, your thesis was great, let's publish it. And so it's nobody known. But generally, um, there are certain authors that are, are, you can, are safe bets, uh, and there are certain authors to flat out avoid. Joel Austin, avoid. Joyce Meyer, avoid. People like this, people you see who are promoting the health, wealth, gospel, um, you know, things like that. Um, so the challenge, again, is often good books and bad ones are someone who's new to the literary scene, okay? So we, we can't do much about that. Here are some deeper things, but it requires you to read it. Same as preaching. How do they use the Bible? Is it exegesis versus eisegesis? Do they just use scripture to support whatever they say? Or do they explain a little bit of why that verse says what they are saying or explains or proves what they are saying? And even they're saying, I believe this because this verse says this versus um, eisegesis, which is the idea of you just use the scriptures to support whatever you want to say. Okay, um, exegesis is draw out. It's what I do. I draw out of the scriptures and that determines what I'm going to say, even if it proves what I wanted to say completely wrong and I have to change what I say. Eisegesis is putting in. And so it means we put into the scriptures what we want to say. Okay, and so how do they use the scriptures? Number two, does the book emphasize happiness and worldly success or repentance and holiness and sacrifice. Okay, so if it's a book that's just to make you happy here on this earth, if it calls for, you know, just earthly happiness and it doesn't call for taking up the cross, that's not a good sign. Um, here are some tips on finding good, good books. Ask your pastor. I actually have a list of books that I have recommended to people in our church and 
A lot of times people come up to me and they say, oh, I'm reading this book by Tim Keller and I'm reading this book by so-and-so. And I'm like, that's great. But what has happened is a lot of people are missing the books that were written in the 80s and 90s that are considered some of the core books of the Christian faith that I really would encourage people to go back to. Um, John MacArthur, John Piper, Tozer, Bridges, people like that. I'm not saying books by Keller and people like that are bad. I'm just saying there are books that someone like Tim Keller would say, the reason I am where I am is because of what Jerry Bridges wrote in whatever book it is, okay? So there are some books, people who are kind of at that level where they're, they're, they're in their 80s and 90s. Some of them have passed away recently. These are the books that I would I push you to buy and to read um, with the caveat that some of those authors no longer believe what they believe when they wrote those books. Okay, so in that case, those authors may not still be ones that are reliable, but the books they wrote at that time are good. And then there's some... There's some books that are very biblical, and then that author goes on to write more books, um, and they're, they're not good anymore, okay? He's totally public about this. I'm not gossiping. He's very public, and he's very clear. Uh, Francis Chan does not, no longer believes what we believe, even though he's a graduate of the master's college and seminary. He's very clear. I do not believe what my seminary taught me anymore, and so um, I would not... Uh, really trust the things he says anymore, okay? Um, second, look for recommendations from solid ministries that you know of. A lot of times they'll have different ministries they support, they agree with, they'll publish their own books. Um, and then check references for books that you know are solid, books that they refer to in the, foot, in the footnotes, okay? In the appendix, things like that. Those can uh, often be trusted as well. All right? Oh boy. Okay, number eight. What happens to unbelievers' souls after they die before the judgment day? Do they go straight to hell or somewhere else? So the unbelievers, at the point of death, their soul goes immediately into eternal punishment. They are then resurrected in earthly body at the great white throne of judgment in Revelation 20. Then their soul and body is cast into the lake of fire forever, also where the Antichrist and the devil and the demons go forever. That lake of fire is technically hell. So until that judgment day, they are not technically in hell, but they are undergoing the same sort of punishment and pain that is hell-like. But they don't have their physical bodies yet, and so it's very diff different, okay? But you understand that the height of wherever they are now and where they will one day be for eternity is fully conscious separation from God and a full awareness of their sin and why they are where they are, okay? So there is some sort of holding place. Um, I wouldn't say that it would be wrong to say, oh, as soon as unbelievers die, they go to hell, because the, it's the same general idea if you mean that place of eternal punishment. But technically, uh, that specific place does not come after, until after the great white throne of judgment. Okay. Number nine, did Old Testament saints have the Holy Spirit? If so, was their having the Holy Spirit different than saints after Pentecost? 
So all believers today, since the time of Pentecost, at the moment of salvation, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come and go. He has, a specific, he has specific roles that are played out in the New Testament believer. Now what's very important to understand is that the Holy Spirit is eternal God. He was there at creation. He was involved at creation. He, not it, by the way. Okay? But until Pentecost which we read about in Acts 2. He did not permanently indwell those who followed God. He did have various roles in the Old Testament, and he did temporarily indwell some, not all, and not just because they were believers or saints. Uh, He indwelt certain people to give them wisdom or abilities, such as the judges, kings like David and Saul, Uh, But that indwelling was temporary. And that's why when David says, because of his sin, do not remove your, don't let your Holy Spirit go from me. That's not losing your salvation. Because in the New Testament, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit is part of salvation. And so people see, see, he was afraid that the Holy Spirit would leave. No, he was, and so he was, you could lose your salvation. No. He was indwelt as the chosen anointed king of Israel. And we know so was Saul, but because of Saul's recklessness and wickedness, what happened? The Holy Spirit left him, showing that his, uh, his, uh, God's commitment that he would be king was no longer, and now David was coming in. So it was just for certain special things and there was, there's even indication that the Holy Spirit did this for people who were not followers of God in order to accomplish his purposes. Okay, number 10. If you're Catholic, do you go to heaven? Again, Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation, period, end of story. I cannot add to that. I cannot take away from that. No matter what you may call yourself, no matter what religion you were raised in, the problem with the Catholic Church as a whole is that they add to this. So they don't say it's Jesus alone. It says Jesus plus your works. This is why I can definitively say that within the Catholic Church, there are some who are truly saved, most are not, and the some are not because of the doctrines and teaching of the Catholic Church, it is in spite of it, okay? If you fully follow the teachings of the Catholic Church, you just can't be saved because it's not the full, clear, limited gospel message. Okay? Number 11. Is it a sin for a married believer to not want kids? It is not a sin because the command be fruitful and multiply is not for all believers. If it was, what do you say about people who physically are unable to have children despite trying and trying? Are they in sin? However, I need to mention a few principles. Psalm 127 says children are a gift and a blessing. If you, 
as a Christian, whether you're married or not, say, well, just not for me. I don't think they're a blessing for me. They're a lot of work. They're a lot of pain. This is not up to debate. If God, you can't say, well, I know the Bible says heaven is a blessing, but not for me because I know I have a lot of unbelieving family and they won't be here. It is a fact. It is theology. God is saying children are a gift and a blessing. You do not have the right to disagree with that because of your personal views. Okay? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belonged to such as these, referring to children, calling us to have childlike faith. And so it's not based on your opinion. It's not based on your personal desires. You have to understand that. The second thing is that the goal of the Christian life is not self, and the goal of the Christian life is not to avoid hardship. And so if you don't want kids as a married couple, that's fine. But if you just don't want to have kids because you want your life to be easier, then you have missed the whole point of your salvation. We have children in order to serve God. It is a wonderful means of serving God and like all service, involves a lot of sacrifice. Thirdly, do not idolize your marriage or personal desires. If your desire to not have children is because you want more time and money for yourself, then you again have missed the whole point of your salvation. If you want to not have children, to have more time and money, that time and money needs to be used for the Lord. Not for more vacations, not for more freedom, not for more sleep. And even that, if that's your desire, you're wrong. Okay? That's not uh, biblical. Okay? Um, you do not serve God by choosing to avoid having children. God clearly wants us to have children, not to the point that it's sin if you don't, but he clearly wants us to have children. It's not like spiritual gifts where some have the gift of preaching, some can play music, some have the gift of whatever it may be. It's different for everyone. Barring medical issues, God so makes it normal for people to have children that even if you are single, you have a pretty gross reminder on a monthly basis of what your body was designed for. I mean, if it was just for some, then I think things would be different. Wouldn't you agree, right? And so even how he started things off at the beginning of creating man and woman, he created it so that if you don't have children, he reminds you on a monthly basis to the point, my understanding that some women can, re can predict it to the day, if not the hour, like you didn't have children this month, but you can, okay? Um, and so, I mean, we gotta understand how clear God is, not just biologically, but from the scriptures of his desire for us. I would add this. You understand as a Christian that the basic building block of society as God has created it is families, okay? Even unbelievers point to 
single moms and different things going on in our society as why our society is crumbling, okay? And just like we say, you're not allowed to complain about what this guy is doing when you knew he would do that and yet you voted for him, you can't have a wrong view of children and family and say, but I'm not gonna be a part of that even though bio biologically um, and financially, and when I say financially, meaning you are not homeless, that you can have children and then complain that uh, our world is falling apart because of families, okay? I know some people choose not to have children because they're scared. You need to trust the Lord. We're all scared. It's terrifying. But, <laughs> but it is part of God's plan uh, for the world, okay? Uh, I know I'm over, but I said I want to do my best. So number 12, finally, acknowledging the, the biblical truth of once saved, always saved. In other words, you cannot lose your salvation. What is your view of backsliding? And backsliding can mean different things. And so I clarified with the person who asked this question. And it's the same thing I mentioned earlier, um, where it's basically someone who says they're a Christian. Maybe you even got saved through their ministry but now they have said they don't believe in God. They have rejected Christ. Again, you go back to everything we've said in various questions regarding fruit, and I would say the biggest fruit is actually saying you believe in Jesus Christ and God, wouldn't it be? And so what does that mean, though? So let's, there's only two options in this scenario. Either, they were truly saved and they're going through a hard patch. They're going through some sort of sin that they're just choosing not to repent of or whatever it may be. Or number two, they were never truly saved in the first place because the question says it, you cannot lose your salvation. So those, and there's other verses we could refer to, give you those as the only two options, okay? Uh, but if they're, they themselves say, I'm not a Christian, then who are you to say they are, right? They want nothing to do with it. And so Matthew 7, 16, we know them by their fruits. 1 John 2, 19 says that there were those who were among them, those who were professing faith, that were enjoying the, the, the benefits of being at the church. But 1 John 2, 19 says, then they left in essence, to prove that they, in fact, were not part of them. They were not truly saved, okay? And so those are really the, the two uh, options. And again, I would go back. It's my understanding that it was a bunch of, uh, a group of moms that were discussing this. I would go back to the understanding that as a mom, I know you want your child to be saved. And if you want that child to be saved, take that desire not in, false hope, but in going back and sharing the gospel uh, with that individual, okay? Great questions. I know I went fast. If you asked some of these questions and my answer did not fully uh, answer what you were thinking, I hope you all understand that I'm always available. I don't mean I'm always available. I am available for you anytime. No, see, how do I say this? You know what I mean. You can email me. You can talk to me. Uh, I know some people, especially if you're from a bigger church, like, oh, I don't talk to the pastor. He's too busy. Um, there's others of you who know that, you know, I'm always, I, I'm available when my schedule allows it, and I clear out a lot of time in my schedule to meet with you. Uh, my wife does as well. 
there's some of you who abuse that um, and, and do it too much, Josh, but it's okay. Um, I am, I'm here for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. You've given us the desire to know you more and to do what is right. And I pray that we would excel still more in that and that we would not just give up, but we would trust you and trust your word to give us the principles to live for life. Use us to that end. Give us an understanding of your word. Give us the diligence to find the right answers and to make every decision through the lens of Scripture. Pray these things in Jesus' name.